Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name, written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Alright, welcome to the second episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Last time we did kind of a get-to-know-you interview with my dad, Blake Osler, getting ready to go over these books, and tonight I wanted to dive in and start on chapter one of his first volume, The Attributes of God. And yeah, just to get going right off, the, the first chapter is titled, The Meaning of God in Mormon Thought. The first section is, What Does God Mean in Mormon Discourse? And I'll let you explain this more, Dad, but basically, why do we need to define God in Mormon Discourse? One of the biggest problems with any discussion interfaith is using terms that appear to be the same but aren't, which leads to the problem of equivocation, which is using the same term but with different meanings. Can you give a, an example of that other than the word God? Well, yeah. If I, if I use the, the word Allah and I use the word El, both are, are proper names for God. And the question is, if I'm if I am in a text and I run across the name Allah, um, would it be equivalent to simply say this is Jehovah or this is El or Elohim, in terms of using the name God? And so w we ask this question: it, Is this the same referent? It does it refer to the same A being or B same kind of thing that we're talking about? There's also a deeper philosophical problem, that's with the very reference of God. Uh, assume for a moment that God doesn't exist. The question then arises, well, how can we refer to something that doesn't exist at all? And if we don't have any idea of what God's existence is, what it's like, can we refer to God at all? This is the, the problem of linguistic philosophy, and that's a that's a deeper problem, this, the semantics of God. And so um, the, the problem that I'm addressing is when Mormons use the term God, what do they generally mean? What are they referring to? And it is equivalent to the use of God in other faiths. It's not, it's not the deeper what is the referent um, of the word God that is the deeper philosophical issue. So um, that it, it, this is introductory paragraph or an introductory chapter so i didn't want to start off with the toughest problem in in religious philosophy <laughs> <laughs> well, probably a good idea no i'm just that i was just thinking about that question and like yeah i mean when you say god or like hi i'd like to talk about god every single person has their own personal understanding of god or their picture of it just because language in itself is limited and so i agree it's a good thing to define that just for the listeners out there that are LDS, when you're talking about the attributes of God, which is the point of this book, when you say omnipotence, you don't necessarily mean the same thing when they say omnipotence, and that's kind of what this book's about. All right, anyway, the second thing here in this first section is the LDS aversion, if you will, to philosophy or theology in general. And can you talk about kind of what the dangers of analyzing God in this way are? I believe the general LDS aversion to theology is that instead of relying on prophetic revelation to, to know or understand God, we rely upon logic and um, you know tools of philosophy. 
so that instead of running to prophets for revelations, you run to philosophers for answers. Is it more like, no matter what you think of, they're like, oh, well, that's just a thing of man's minds, and it doesn't matter at all, because what really matters is direct revelation. That's the only thing that matters in the end. Is that part of it? I think that is part of it, and it's probably a different way of saying what I just said. I think also there's another um, problem with theology, and that is religion, um, broadly, and spiritual um, commitment within uh, either a tradition or, you know, people who are quote-unquote unaffiliated with, who consider themselves simply spiritual. Um, what they're referring to when they refer to God or what they are really seeking is based upon very fundamental personal experiences that they have. And an experience very often can't be captured in any way in a definition it can't be fully defined. It's like, let's say that, you know, if somebody asked you to define your wife, you would just kind of stare at them in utter amazement that they were asking such a stupid question. And so um, when people who know God interpersonally in this way um, or believe that they do, and you ask them, what does God mean? It's kind of like saying, what does your, define your mother for me or define your best friend or define your wife. And it's like, are you crazy? I don't think you understand you you know, at all. I, I don't understand what you're talking about, and there's no way for me to even talk about this with you, because what I'm talking about is a lived experience, something that you encounter as a thou rather than something that you cogitate to while you're sitting in your armchair thinking carefully. Right. So what, I don't know, what like what's the danger in doing that, at least to the common believer? Like, do, what are they afraid of? I, I think they're afraid that we missed the entire point. <laughs> It's like if, if somebody asked you to define your wife, you would look at them and say, the only way for me to define my wife is for me to introduce you to her and for you to spend an afternoon talking to her and then from time to time interacting with her. Um, and it would be helpful if you saw her without makeup, and it might be helpful if you saw her on her best days and on her worst days. And then you might be, begin to get some inkling of my wife. But can't just talk about it and examine it from, you know, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so. it's a lived experience, not something that can be reduced to concepts. All right, and fair enough. They're obviously correct as far as that goes, but I'm going to read a passage here which I really enjoy, and you talk about, despite this, we still need to understand God enough to know what we are actually believing in, because you can't believe in something if you have no concept of what it is. This passage here, it talks about, what a devout person must do. I'm going to read it. It says, It is precisely the devout person who will seek to understand God through every faculty of human discernment. The devout person inevitably will ask what God is like and how we can come to understand his nature, or whether he has a nature. That is the question I want to explore in my own tradition, commonly known as Mormonism. What can we or must we understand God to be? So that, I think, kind of serves as the impetus for the whole book. That I highlighted that a while ago. Is there anything you want to expound on there? Yeah, those are two very different questions. What can we understand of God? You know, realizing that we're very limited in our ability to understand. The, the fancy way for the philosophers refer to, to that is to say um, we're epistemologically limited, which means epistemology is the theory of knowledge. But we're also cognitively limited. Our ability to grasp reality um, is is limited, and so this requires a good deal of humility. Even a non-believer 
must be able to grasp something to the extent that when we're referring to God, we're referring to something that we all agree that if it does exist is well beyond our capacity to fully grasp. <laughs> and so it requires humility. It requires humility in addition, um, as I explained further, that we're not dealing merely with concepts, we're dealing with a person. And when we're dealing with a person, it calls for a certain um, reverence and valuing and honoring that when we're dealing with mere things, we don't have to exercise that kind of care. And only the believer is going to bring that kind of reverence to the conversation. The, the non-believer is going to see it as just, you know, a, a philosophical nonsense to get cleared up in, in conversation. So the question, what can we understand God to be, is very different from the question, uh, is, is there something we must understand God to be? And that is, assuming that God exists, are there certain requirements that the that any person, entity, or thing must have in order to qualify as God? Like, in order to be a table, you would think that at the very least it would have to have a top that is smooth that you could lay things on. Um, the question then becomes, does it have to have at least four legs? <laughs> does it have to, you know, what is a table? You can talk about that. But you have to have some bare minimum idea of what a table is in order. And the question is, is God like that? Does it have what we would call an essence um, that that we can agree that a being that we refer to as God must have? Because God isn't just any you know guy down the street. God is in some ultimate sense a supreme being um, or a class of beings that have a certain set of, of properties and attributes and so um, those are the two questions primarily that i began to address in this first chapter all right great and that's going to lead us into the next sections here uh before we go on to the next section there's two concepts that are in the book that i wanted to just have you clarify first you mentioned something called the via negativa Can you clarify kind of what that is or how that's important to this first section of understanding God? Yeah, the via negativa is also known as apathetic um, theology. And what that means is we cannot describe anything about God positively. I can't say, for instance, that God has blue eyes and, and is six foot two. I can't say that God is loving straightforwardly. The only thing I can say about God is what he is not. I can say that God so I, I would say that God has no body. The technical term for that is incorporeal. I can say that God is not um, limited in any way by time. God is, is timeless. I can say that God, um, you know, isn't uh, the type of being that has feelings. He's impassable. So the via negativa that it was derived through apophatic theology, this developed, by the way, very early because it was uh, – in the, in the confluence of the Christian religion as it moved into the Greek world, which of course happened early with the, the Apostle Paul, that as people began to think about God, the very kind of question I ask, is there something we can understand God to be? The answer to that was no, but we can say things that God is not. Gotcha. <laughs> so, so for instance, God, God is not the German shepherd down the street. But more seriously, God has to be the kind of being who isn't limited by, by space. Um, 
and so God is immaterial, that kind of thing. Okay, so just basically the concept that we can't positively say anything, but we can only say what he's not. Yeah, that's a basic definition. All right, and right before we go into this next section, you also state that you're going to basically be comparing Mormonism to the creedal traditions, or you know the general Christian tradition. My question is, why, in your opinion, is that important? At least my understanding of that was basically to get a sense of where we are on a spectrum of things, you know, without knowing where we are or just make sense of it to other people. I think it's important to situate Mormonism in relation to what went before it in the Christian tradition. Um, Mormons not only claim to be Christians um, in every sense of the word of worshiping Christ and striving to follow Christ and live Christ-like lives, they're Christians. But most people haven't simply met, if somebody said, are you Christian? They simply haven't met that that you're a very wonderful person in the way that you live. Maybe Mahatma Gandhi, who didn't believe in Christ, would meet that definition of a Christian. And so what we mean by Christian, and Mormonism, and this is, I think, the importance of this. Mormonism certainly didn't arise in a vacuum. It didn't. It wasn't created out of nothing. It arose in a culture already steeped in Christian ideas, thoughts, term, and terminology. And our scriptures are are steeped in the language of Christianity that has developed over the prior eighteen hundred millennia. And so, when we talk about Mormonism, we're talking about already a form of mature understanding that is the beneficiary of thousands of years of development. And so, you know, we have essentially two millennia since Christ was walking around on the earth. And by saying Christ, I'm already using an evaluative term. There was a man, Yeshua, um, who was known as Yeshua of Nazareth, who was in Palestine around the turn of the common era instead of saying before or after Christ, because that also assumes a lot. Okay. But Mormonism doesn't enter the world in a vacuum. It enters already a world of terminology that is already created by a largely Christian culture and a theology that has already been developed. And so when Mormons use terms, they already use them, um, carrying the baggage of um, two millennia of development. All right, that's a good point. All right, well, that is going to wrap up that first section there, at least for the questions I have. All right, so the next section is attribute and essence, and this kind of leads into some of, well, you were alluding to kind of this table metaphor, which we'll get to in a second, but I just wanted to read before we get to that, um, just kind of what I considered the topic sentence of it. It says, the problem of conceiving God is in part the ancient problem of being and becoming, perhaps the most persistent problem of Greek metaphysics. At the heart of this problem are the notions of essence and identity. In other words, how does something change and become something different while nevertheless remaining what it is? And you go into different things there. So what what is this problem of being and becoming, if you could expand on that a little bit? Being and becoming, of course, is the question of identity. The easy way to say it is, are you really the same person you were when you were five because you're really so different? Just about everything is different about you, except for the fact that you bear the same name and memories of a person who came before you. Um, but in a, in a large way, you're still the very same person I knew when you were five, and you were delightful when you were five, except for when you weren't. Okay. Well, how does that relate to God? 
it, the, the question is, is there, when we're talking about God, what kind of identity, and so this is the question of identity. Is there something about God that is essential to him in order to be God? So an essence is this. Take all the properties that a thing must have to be what it is, and that is its essence. Give me the table metaphor if you remember it. I have it here, but I thought it was a good metaphor. The, the table metaphor is essentially this. What What is the essence of a table? Must a table have a smooth top, or could it be round? Must it have four legs, or could it have, have eight or twelve? And if we're talking about um, a table, so everybody agrees that if I have something that has like a piece of smooth wood on top that are, and it has four legs on each corner and you set it and it, it is intended to set things on top of it, we call that a table. I then ask, well, what if it only had three legs and we balanced them? Would that also be a table? And many people might say, no, that's a very large stool. And others might say, yeah, that's still a table. And I say, okay. So I, I come up with these properties, and, and properties is a very platonic way of referring to what an essence is. But in essence, a property <laughs> is um, simply a way that we describe something, um, the various elements of the description. You, you mentioned essential properties and non-essential properties. So what would be essential properties of your, I guess, you, you gave us essential properties of a table. What point is it no longer a table? Yeah, so let's say the table is made of wood, and then I, I find something else that looks just like it, but it's made of granite. So that's still a table. That's not, okay. Right, so it's not essential to a table that it be wood. A non-essential property of this particular table that is that it's made of wood. So we can call that a non-essential, where the important term is accidental property of a table. What it's made out of is therefore not what is essential to a table. It could be made out of rubber could be made out of plastic, could be made out of granite. Um, those are So the fact that this table is made out of wood is an accidental or non-essential property of a table. But if I take this, ta this table made out of wood and I get a great big rock and I smash it and it just smalls and it falls into various pieces of wood, I don't have a table anymore. The form and essence of a table has now been destroyed. Um, and it would be the same whether it were made out of granite or anything else. If I take and smash it into just different pieces, it's no longer what I was referring to as a table. It's just a pile of rubble. Whatever properties it has that don't define it as a table, but it seems to have anyway, are called accidental or non-essential properties. If it has to have that property in order to be a table, then that is an essential property of tableness. This is a very platonic way of talking about things, but it's still... It's still a very instructive way of uh, talking about things, and I adopt this way of talking about things both because it, I think, is for um, you know at least a beginning way of getting into a subject uh, and uh, just kind of an intuitive way to get into it, and it's also the way that largely the Christian tradition chose to develop itself in terms of describing itself, so it serves two purposes. If we lost anyone on the table metaphor there, the whole point of this is because we're talking about attributes of a table there, and now we're going to move into attributes of God. So let's talk about what an attribute is. We talk about attributes of God. An attribute is simply an essential property of something. So another name for, for essential property is attribute. So what are the attributes of Corey? Well, Corey certain, has to have a certain DNA in order to be Corey. If you had a different DNA, presumably you wouldn't be you. But, he, you know, it, it also 
the, the question then becomes, you know, are there any other essential properties of human being? It, do you have to be a mammal? And the answer, I think, is yes, you, you have to be a mammal in order to be a human being. So a human being, being a mammal is an attribute of being a human, and having DNA is an attribute of being a human. Just some examples. You go on in this section, but it kind of blends into this next section, so I'll just start that, and then we can go back if we need to. The next section is, is God a name or a title? That's something some people might not have thought about, so I'll kind of go into that, yeah. Yeah, I think there are two primary ways that people generally think about God, and it goes back to the vision about why theology might be something that is offensive to somebody who's truly a believer. And that is, do I think about God as a title? I'll give an example of, of the way that something could could be a title, and that is, let's talk about the mayor of Boston. The mayor of Boston has to have certain properties, essentially, certain attributes. Has to have the attributes of being an elected official, being at least 35 years of age, and the property of never having committed a felony. These are properties or you know, essential properties or attributes of the mayor of Boston. But clearly, the mayor of Boston is somebody who could be different than the present mayor is. So if I'm using God like I use the term mayor of Boston, then God becomes a title. And that means that, that God, when I refer to God, I'm referring to a bearer of attributes and properties. I'm referring to something that has, it has to be defined in a certain way to be that thing. But if I take the Curly Miller to be the present mayor of Boston, um, clearly Curly Miller doesn't have to be the mayor to be Curly Miller. And Curly Miller could have all of those properties that I've just described of the mayor of Boston, but they're really not essential to being Curly Miller. If Curly Miller commits a felony, he's still Curly Miller. <laughs> um, if he becomes an unelected official, he's still who he is. And a lot of, when we think about God, when we're talking about Jehovah, we use a personal name and we refer to a personal being. That's what we mean. I mean, there's a, a very broad distinction, but... I think when the believer is talking about God, they're talking often talking about that being who they feel loving them, that being who has forgiven them, that being that they have encountered as a as not as a person. And I'll make a distinction between person and personal being later. But at the very least, the Christian tradition thinks of God as a personal being, and Mormons, and I would suggest inherently Christianity at least, thinks of God as a person. In Islam and in you know, um, God may not be a person; He may be merely a title. But in Judaism, God is a person, and God is a particular person with a definite name, Jehovah, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. Um, and so, it's, this is an essential question. And I want to begin simply making the distinction so that I can define: Am I talking about a bearer of attributes so that I have a title? And, or am I talking about a personal name, which generally doesn't is not, you know, it doesn't have specific attributes. It's just that personal being I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. All right, makes sense. Also, the next thing you ask is basically, is God a class of being, or more like a position that a being holds, like mayor of Boston, or is it like a class that you can, you know, that? Or, I guess the main question is, can it be occupied by more than one being? Yes, yeah, the question of monotheism. Usually in the tradition, when Christians talk about God, God is the unique and only member of a species, okay? And the species is that being which created everything else besides itself out of nothing. 
So essentially, there can only be one being in this class <laughs> of logical necessity. And they think of God, moreover, as the superlative being. Nobody could be great could be possibly as great as God is, so God turns out to be the greatest possible. And in the tradition, um, they developed a certain terminology saying that God is the greatest conceivable being, meaning not that God is the greatest being that we can conceive, but God's even greater than we conceive. But whatever we come up with as the, as the greatest conceivable thing that's logically possible, God must be that being. Because if there were another being that were even conceivably greater then the being that we have in mind is not God because any being that is less than the, than this conceivably greatest couldn't possibly qualify. And so you can arrive at monotheism in a number of different ways. A lot of people also assert that the old Testament beginning um, with about the time of second Isaiah, that would be um, beginning about 500 um, before the common era, 500 BC, with the emergence of Second Isaiah, we see the emergence of a true monotheism in, in the writings of Isaiah. Um, and assume it as a background. And in the discussion with others outside of the Mormon faith, especially those who really haven't studied much about, um, you know, it, the Hebrew background of the of the Bible or more recent scholarship simply assume that monotheism means that there is a unique being that we're referring to and no, there can't possibly be any other being because by definition, a part of the essence of God, a part of the attribute of God that makes him God is that he is the one and only greatest um, that there could possibly be who created everything else out of nothing. So I gave you three ways to drive mono, monotheism, the scriptural argument, the argument based upon the the concept of greatness and um, the argument that arises from a particular notion of creation. So you have creational monotheism, scriptural monotheism, and what I'll call uh, metaphysical monotheism. All right. The title of the next heading, if you couldn't tell, is God and Monotheism. So and we've talked about this a little bit, but you start off by talking about the problem of the one and the many. So what, what is that? The, the problem of the one and the many um, drives out of Greek thought. And um, it, it is you know, essentially the kind of problem that I've already elucidated for the word God. But it also is like um, if I think of something as good and I believe that there is some kind of a, an absolute idea of good. Um, how many ideas of good are there? And you'd say, well, there's only one. There's a form of good. This is very platonic again. And how many, I have the, the idea of beauty. And the, and the question is, well, how many ideas of beauty could there be that are the um, real ideal of beauty? And the answer is, well, there could only be one. Um, and, and in fact, I contend somewhat in, in my thinking that what, Christians did is they took all of the Platonic forms, these ideal realities that Plato come up with that, that define how things have to be in terms of are they good, are they beautiful, and so forth, and they simply applied those as attributes of God. <laughs> so God is the good in a Platonic form way, he's beautiful in, in, in the Platonic form way, and so forth. 
and then they made God the sole greatest conceivable being. Um, and it's a very it arises out of a platonic way of addressing the world. Um, and I would say that for writers um, like Plotinus and Augustine, that their thinking was was informed by this way of approaching God, a very platonic way of approaching God. Plato lived before the rise of Christianity, right? Yes, four centuries. We'll talk about this in the next chapter too, but he became influential with the early Christian thinkers on how to think of God. So he wasn't necessarily thinking of the God of the Hebrew Bible, but these concepts later influenced other theologians in early Christianity. Yeah, just as an aside, there were very many earliest Christian philosophers who argued that the the Christian God just was the, the God of Plato, and that Plato actually was kind of a proto-Christian, just, you know, given the kind of things that are going on there. All right, and then you also talk about monism. Is that just basically monotheism, or...? No, monism is is a different kind of thought. It's that we can reduce um, what is to just one thing ultimately. Or in the mind-body problem, monism is the view that, that you can reduce mind and body to just one thing, usually... Um, and you can, re- for instance, if you believe that that there's no such thing as a separate mind, and the mind is just the workings of a material brain, then monism is matter. It's then it, it's called materialism, of course, and so that that also is a monism. All right. So this comes up in Christian understanding of Jesus as God, and you kind of have a just like a logical argument. A syllogism. Sure, but anyway, it's kind of like in. In logic, you have a you state your premises one, two, three, with or with a conclusion. Anyway, if you could explain this, I'm going to read it, and then if you could kind of go over it. And again, this is talking about the Son and the Father, and how Jesus Christ, many believe to be actually God or the Son of God, depending on how you define that, and how that can be if there is only one God. And then you use this formula here: one, the Son and the Father have in common certain properties of the kind K. And K is just a, like a variable defining the properties that they have in kind. Um, the kind. K, K stands for kind. I'm just telling people because like it's not a normal way to say things. That it's not conversational. This is like a formula because we're trying to use a logical argument. Two, all beings who have properties of the kind K belong to the class of beings we refer to as gods. Right? That's assertion two. Number three, this is the conclusion. Therefore, the son and the father belong to the class of things we refer to as gods. Right. And and what I'm talking about here is when we're talking about monotheism and we're using different kinds of names to refer to God, um, the question then arises, are we talking about a class of beings or must God be a unique member of the class and there can't be any other being that is in that class, so there's necessarily only one? You could replace these premises and say that Allah, Jehovah, and Ahira Mazda are all um, all have common properties of the kind K, and you could say that properties are having been worshipped by people as God at one time. Um, two, all beings who have properties of the kind K belong to the class of beings that we refer to as gods. Therefore, here Mazda, Allah, and Jehovah belong to the class of beings we refer to as gods, which happens to be true, I believe. And so the, the question is, okay then, and what's interesting about the use of Allah, Jehovah, and Hira Mazda is they are all monotheistic traditions. 
Um, some people would argue that that Ahura Mazda, which is the Zoroastrianism, there's an evil principle that's as eternal as Ahura Mazda, and it is therefore an ultimate dualism. But Ahura Mazda is clearly the supreme being, even in that system. Um, Allah, of course, is the God of Islam, and Jehovah is is the anglicized form of, of Yahweh that was worshipped by the Hebrews. And they were all intended to be a form of monotheism. Um, so when I refer to Allah, am I referring to the same being as, as Yahweh? If I were translating, for instance, the Book of Mormon into Arabic, I, would, I think I would be required to use the word Allah for the word God. And then I would have to ask the question, well, but Allah comes with a whole lot of baggage from another tradition. And clearly the God that I'm referring to that's revealed in the revelations of Joseph Smith doesn't have a whole lot in common with what they refer to as Allah. So the question arises, am I referring to that same kind of being at all? Or another question is, could there be more than one being that we refer to God, which is the question of monotheism? And, of course, the way I point, I, I bring this out just brings home the kind of problem that's going to arise if you want to maintain monotheism, but you maintain that there are distinct beings referred to as the Father and the Son. That is the third volume, and it's an entire book to discuss that issue, and so I'm not going to get into that now. <laughs> Fair enough. The next section is titled The Divine Thou, and I understand that is kind of a, a term coined by a philosopher named Martin Buber, but can you kind of explain the concept of what a divine thou is? Well, we're talking about a divine thou. A thou is not an object, and when we, for the believer to address God is to address something that is very different than when a non-believer addresses the same subject matter. And the difference, I guess you could say generically, is one of attitude. But for the believer, it's not one, just one of attitude. It is one of reverence and valuing. So when I approach, for instance, I can't use a person as a mere thing. I can't use that person um, simply as, as a means of achieving my own ends because I fail to recognize something that is essential about reality, and that is that persons have value that requires that they be recognized as ends in and of themselves. This is all something that sounds very Kantian, and it is, but it seems to me to be true. And that is that persons have a certain dignity and require a certain kind of treatment from us ethically that other kinds of things don't. So, for instance, I don't have to treat my toy airplane with the kind of dignity and respect that persons are due for me. And any person, merely in, in virtue of being another human being, demands from me, places ethical demands upon me, um, simply to address them. And if I address God, who is the ultimate person, maybe, um, in the sense that the rest of us are striving to develop our personhood, but we must, I think, accept that God is fully developed personhood. He, we are, are mere humans, but he is full humanity in this sense. And, and that is that if, if I as a believer am going to talk about God, I cannot simply reduce God to be an object for my purposes. I must speak respectfully and with, in a way that demonstrates my love and commitment. 
And so I have laid upon me as a believer commitments and ethical duties that a non-believer is never going to understand or accept. Um, and maybe we have people who were once believers and have ceased to be believers. And often it seems to me like when a believer is discussing the same subject matter um, with somebody who was once a believer and ceases to be a believer, the discussion always turns into a kind of mockery and, and sacrilegious violation of what I care about most. And so it's very difficult to address these kinds of issues across these kinds of attitudes. But it's essential, in my view, to recognize that we have these kinds of moral obligations, and I have moral obligations that others are not going to accept. And at least in the traditions of, of the book, and that would include Zoroastrianism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity, God is conceived of as personal and laying these kinds of commitments on us merely because he, he's a person. And not only is he personal, we owe him everything. He's created our lives and, and, and framed the reality and given us the opportunity of life. And so it's not merely, God, whatever we owe our parents uh, for whatever love they've shown us, and I know people have parents sometimes who don't show complete love, but God does, and he's provided everything for us. So it calls not only for reverence, but also gratitude. And so as we move forward in the discussion, we must recognize, I think, that this is not just any old discussion. And I am not merely a philosopher engaging in this discussion. I am a passionate believer who seeks to convey the value that I find in this relationship. And so as a Mormon, if I fail to convey that value, I'm not really conveying anything about the Mormon God. I'm just talking about a generic concept as a philosophical issue. And those are very different matters. So if I'm going to talk about the attributes of God in Mormon thought, one of those attributes is that he is a thou. He is a sacred being that, that commands my gratitude and my attitude of reverence and worship. And worship worthiness seems to be an essential attribute of God in the Christian tradition. And we can talk about that later. So what I'm saying is we're going to, you know, different ways of approaching, you know, what what must we understand God to be? So we'll get into that a bit later. But I, the, the notion of God as a thou um, invokes all of that. And it's a very essential um, matter to this discussion. Gotcha. All right. And also just uh, a reference for listeners. I didn't know about this either. We've kind of lost it in English, but. In other languages, for example, I learned Russian, and I, I know Spanish does this, as probably other Latin languages, but the term you has two meanings. You can say you, and that's kind of a formal, it can refer to more than one person. And then there's another word, T, or it's basically the thou, is, is an intimate or someone that's a close friend or that you know, you use that word with them. And, and this word thou in Old English was that intimate form of you that we just use for everything now. We say you, hey you, I know you. But before we would say you in a personal intimate form would use the word thou. And that's why we use that in, in prayer language. And, you know, that's one of the, the good things we get from the King James Bible. I think that's right. And I think it says a lot about us that we don't even have this intimate sense or that we are so informal that everybody in the world has this intimate sense with us that we would have to feign. 
Um, as you pointed out, other languages, in fact, it exists in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and the languages that derive from them, um, and uh, the Slavic languages as well, and they all make this distinction that we've basically lost. So basically I'm going to refer to the, the Spanish um, way of referring to this. I would do it in Latin, but I think a lot more people a lot more people know Spanish. So the difference is between conocer and saber. And conocer means to know a person interpersonally and intimately, and saber means to know about a person. Um, but clearly knowing about a person is not nearly the same as knowing a person in this intimate form. The problem is we really can't translate the distinction. We don't we could translate it as being acquainted with the person, but that's a real pale and thin translation of the word conocer, because if I'm acquainted with a person, I'm really saying, yeah, I kind of know that person. And that's clearly not what um, um, this type of, of um, intimate form in, in Russian tea or in um, Spanish conocer uh, means. It, it means to have this kind of, and it means more than just knowing a person intimately. It means having a lived intimate experience and intimacy doesn't mean sexuality it means i have shared life with this person i have i have um been challenged by this person to go beyond me to transcend who i am this person lays demands upon me as a thou this person shares my life with me <laughs> and so um, this is a very important aspect and we don't have the way really of directly addressing it in our language we have to define it as we've done and talk all around it because some for some reason our language has lost the ability to simply assume this distinction in the way that we address god but you're also correct the argument has been made that the thou form when we say thou it that is a more formal form of um addressing god in other words when we address god as a thou we're using what would be in the um, Latin languages, um, or I'm going to use again the Spanish rather than Latin, the vosotros form, which doesn't even exist now in, in the um, Americas. It only exists in Spain um, in using Spanish, which means that the closest English translation to that is y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All of you, <laughs> okay? Everybody that, that I'm, you know, if I sweep my hand to the congregation, it means y'all, everybody involved. And so that when we're using the thou form, we're real, really using something that is more formal. And the formal form isn't even the vosotros, it's, it's really, really eos, which is a, a respectful way of, you know, if I, it, the kingly we. And so if I'm speaking of the king, I refer to the king as they, because he's so much greater than just one person. Um, but the reality is I don't buy the argument. The, the clear use of thou is within the family in, a, in the intimate knowing. And so the argument that the, we're being more formal with God rather than intimate with God by using thee, thou, thine, and so forth doesn't make any – it's just not an accurate argument in my view. It misunderstands the linguistic history of the use. Um, but when I pray, um, it's always natural for me to pray in a, in a way that uses the do like in, in German or the two in Italian or Spanish um, or French or, you know, this more formal form because it's now become an essential way of addressing 
my relationship with God. That's not true of everybody, obviously, but for me at least, it's it's now something that is very useful for me to do. So I do that. All right. Let's see. We'll probably get into this more in the other parts of the book, but it in going on with the what has been referred to as the Trinity, which I just again I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but for the LDS people that might not know this is outside of our tradition, most people think that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, at least at least one vein of this, thinks that they are actually the same being in just different modes of that, and that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But in Mormonism, we think of God as, or the members of the Godhead as fully other, and this is the, more in that thou, they think of each other as thous as opposed to being one homogenized being. And we are also completely other than God, which is distinct from a tradition referred to as Calvinism. And I just wonder if you could go kind of into... Well, let me, actually, let me, let me do it this way. Really, I'm using a very basic distinction here to avoid confusion. When most of those discussing God from the Christian, the Christian tradition, when they refer to God, they're referring to God as the Trinity as a whole. But when they compare the Mormon view of God with their view of God, they don't refer to the Godhead, which is the Mormon term for the Trinity usually. Um, they refer to just one of the divine beings. Um, so, for instance, they'll compare the, their view of God as a Trinity of persons in one, however you want, want to define that. And there are a lot of different ways. Um, and then say that for, we believe that God became God be, through his experiences and that he lived on another earth. Um, they're referring to the Father alone or the Son alone, and that's comparing apples and oranges, obviously and completely. If we were talking about, you know, I, I had a conversation with a Christian minister. He said, you believe that God lived on an earth? I said, yeah, so do you. So what? He said, no, I don't. I believe in the Trinity, and God has never been on an earth. I said, well then what's happening here is is we're not talking to each other because when you use the word God, you're referring to the Trinity. And obviously, if I say the Godhead has never been on the earth as a human being, no, no Mormon would possibly disagree with that. But you also believe in the same way that I do that God has been a, a person on an earth, and that is that Jesus Christ became mortal and he's God. And the person who walked around the Palestinian countryside is Jesus as God. Therefore, you believe God was a person on earth. And so if we clear up the confusion about am I referring to one of the divine beings in the Godhead or Trinity as opposed to the Trinity as a whole, then I can avoid this kind of nonsensical confusion. And it's kind of the kind of it's the kind of thing I run into when I'm discussing this with evangelicals who want to get a leg up on Mormons and and just, you know, don't know much I think about Mormonism, but have read a lot of anti Mormon um, drivel. And so use these kinds of arguments kind of without understanding how um, really equivocal and nonsensical their their discussions about Mormonism are. But I'm not interested in that level of discussion. I, I want to have a respectful and um, honorable discussion with those who are not Mormon. And so I simply want to clear up the confusion and say, when I say God— I use it in different ways. If I'm going to refer to the Trinity, I will refer either to the Trinity or to the Godhead. When I'm referring to one of the individual divine persons, I will use the Father, the Son, 
and or Holy Ghost to distinguish and discuss that particular divine person um, separately so that we can avoid that confusion. And, and at this point in the discussion, that's all I'm really doing.